The trick in that is not spilling my water. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out and join me in turning to Acts chapter 13. Last week we, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, set out on a journey to look at Paul's first missionary journey, which encompasses uh, chapters 13 uh, and 14, and uh, didn't quite get all the way through that last week. So last week was kind of part one, this week is part two of, of that message. Uh, if you didn't, if you, if you were not here last week, that's okay. There will be some uh, points where I probably repeat something, but this message will uh, hopefully give you something to chew on. And we will not get to chapter 14, so <clears throat> we'll have to come back to conclude Paul's first missionary journey at some point. But in Acts chapter 13, it begins with five guys, not burgers and fries, five guys, burgers and fries might be good, <clears throat> who knows, they may have had them, I don't know. They're in a room, and they're praying. Good thing to do for guys, right? You need to get together and pray. And verse 2, I think it's verse 2, says, The Holy Spirit said to them. So in this moment of prayer, you've got these five guys experience what Luke is reporting as the Holy Spirit saying, and the Holy Spirit says, I want you to set aside uh, Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have for them. If you remember what Saul, during Saul's conversion, um, Jesus was pretty specific with him that he would be one who carries the name of Jesus to the Gentiles. <clears throat> and so we see uh, Barnabas and Saul, they're active in a church it's in a town called Antioch, uh, Syrian Antioch. We know that there's multiple cities over in that area that have the name Antioch. We're going to talk about two of them today. The, this this uh, five-guy prayer meeting begins at the church in Syrian Antioch. And the church in Syrian Antioch becomes probably the greatest catalyst to the spread of the gospel throughout the Gentile region. And it starts with five guys in a room praying. Now the church in Antioch, if you recall, uh, they have something good going on. When Stephen was martyred earlier in the book of Acts, we read about that. There was some persecution that began to arise in and around Jerusalem, and these early believers were, were scattered. They, they were frightened. Uh, they didn't know what to expect in Jerusalem anymore, and so they, they went out and about the, the countries there, um, probably to places where they had family or business connections. And we read that some of them went up to Antioch in Syria. 
and began to talk to their fellow Jewish people in that community. But Luke tells us in Acts that it was the people that went to Antioch, kind of moved, dispersed from Jerusalem because of persecution. Those people, when they went to Antioch, they didn't just share the gospel of Jesus with fellow Jewish people. They began talking to Gentiles. And the people just ate it up. And so we have this picture of what started maybe as just a few people, a burning ember, if you will. You know, whenever I go camping, uh, my goal, if we have a campfire uh, one night, I know you're supposed to dump all sorts of water on it and put it out, so you firefighters in the room, forgive me for this. But I I put the fire out, and it's out, it's not going to burn, but I I like to go in the morning and, and just root through the charcoal to see if I can find one burning ember from the night before. And it's a challenge to see if you can coax that burning ember into a fire again. And that's a picture I have. When, when, these, when the fire was doused, when the fire of the gospel was, when, when, when they martyred Stephen and the persecution came upon these new believers, the culture, the Jewish culture, the, the people at large were trying to douse the flames of the gospel. And so all of these little burning embers went out and around and landed somewhere. And the one in Antioch was breathed into a huge, roaring fire. This was an awesome church to be a part of. So they had something really good going, and now we have the Holy Spirit telling these five guys, five leaders in their church, that, hey, I want you to take two of your best leaders, and I want you to send them somewhere else. I I want them to go extend the gospel And I can imagine, I mean, I think these guys were were in tune with the Holy Spirit, but at some level there's this this thought that shoots through their mind, and they're thinking, ah, I don't know if we want to send two of our best leaders, because that might diminish us. But nevertheless, in a moment of prayer, it's the Holy Spirit Think he's pretty persuasive. They release Barnabas and Saul. Once in a while, God will ask you to leave something really good for the unknown. And he'll come to you in a moment. Maybe it's a moment of prayer. Maybe it's, you know, in the wee hours of the morning when you're laying there in bed, sort of asleep. And a thought will just go through your mind and you might not know exactly where it comes from that asks you to do something that you normally wouldn't ask yourself to do. That just may be the Holy Spirit trying to get your attention. To leave something behind that was really good for what you say. Well, God doesn't always give you all the details. I've shared with you my personal call into ministry a couple times. 
I, I like to know details. I, I like to have the chart, uh, kind of just the, I, I want to I know where I'm going, the, the course mapped out. So God, God said to me, um, I want you to, at some point in your life, be in vocational ministry. And I said, okay. But will you tell me what that looks like? And he said, no. Or not yet. <laughs> and so there was a long journey of discovering what that looks like, laying each and every step of our journey in front of him and, and just trying to pursue with the Holy Spirit, what would you have next for me, Lord? And it wasn't for a number of years that before God kind of connected all of the dots from my journey into selling something that was really good, leaving something behind that was going well, was profitable, all of those sorts of things, everything that you would describe as good. And he said, okay, you've built all that up, now I want you to leave it now. Okay, for what? Well, sort of it was unknown. But the unknown at this point was something that was an unknown way back in my teenage years that he was starting to connect all the dots that this is the time that I want you to step into vocational ministry. And just keep laying those steps out in front of me and, and I'll help guide you through. Now, for me, personally, that's challenging because I like to know the steps. And when I don't, then it forces me to grow. And so sometimes when we leave the good that we know for something that is unknown, one, it's to pursue what God would want for us, and two, maybe that is some steps in a growing and maturing process in your life as we learn to put each and every step in front of the Lord. So Saul and Barnabas, if I mix up the names Saul and Paul, it's the same guy. Uh, oftentimes people would have, you know, up to three different names depending on which territories they were um, moving around in. And Saul, a Jewish name, uh, he starts going by Paul as he inter interacts with the, with the Gentile world. So they set off from Syrian Antioch and they go the, the few miles uh, to the west for them and up the Orontes River to the little port there that Antioch would use. And they got on a boat and they sailed over to the island of Cyprus. Now Barnabas was from Cyprus, and so maybe he was going to check in on the folks and the family before they're off. On, we don't know. But what we do know is that they went from Antioch to Cyprus. And we're told that they kind of preached their way through the synagogues from one end of Cyprus all the way to the other end. And they, they finally get to a, a town called Paphos. And at the beginning of this missionary journey, I think it's very intentional that Luke puts before us a model that is about to repeat itself over and over and over again as uh, Saul and Barnabas go out on this missionary journey. So they get to Paphos, and they meet two, two guys, 
uh, they meet the governor, Sergius Paulus, high-ranking, we're told he's an intelligent man, and he's hungry for the word of the Lord. And then on the other hand, we meet this guy named Elimus, and he is a Jewish sorcerer, a Jewish smart guy, maybe an advisor. We're, we're told that he's an attendant to Sergius Paulus. And when Paul starts talking to the governor about the gospel, Elimus has some big problems with that. And, and what we see is this, this battle. The battle lines are drawn in the first episode of the first missionary journey that they set out on. So you have Sergius Paulus on one hand representing all of those who are starving. They're living in famine. They are hungry for the word of the Lord and the grace and the mercy and the freedom and the forgiveness available in Jesus Christ. And then on the other hand, across the battle line, you have Elimus representing all of those who would do anything to work against the spread of the gospel. And so the battle line is drawn, and Elimus is working to undermine everything that, that Paul is telling uh, Sergius. And we've already, to this point in Acts, we, we've, we've kind of been exposed to challenges persecution. As the gospel goes out and it takes territory, it's taking territory from someone, especially in the Roman Empire. The people understood when you said Lord, you were talking about Caesar. And so now the Christian movement is going out and they're talking about Jesus being Lord. Well, if Jesus is Lord, that means that Caesar is not. And so that is very offensive to some people. And, and there are going to be some who stand up and say, no, you can't, you can't do that. That's, that's wrong. Then you have uh, the Jewish contingent who they don't embrace Jesus at this point. Not all of them. And so the battle lines are drawn. It's going to keep coming up over and over and over again in the book of Acts. But it's not just in the book of Acts, is it? The battle line is still drawn. Whenever you would work to advance the gospel, you can expect to meet resistance. Whenever the gospel starts taking ground, it's taking ground from somebody, and that somebody is going to try and beat it back. And so if you take steps forward in your faith, if this church takes steps forward in sharing the love of Jesus with our community, you can expect and anticipate and welcome the resistance. You know, we, I, I talked about this uh, a few weeks ago. I, I quoted from Ephesians 6, and it just keeps coming up. Um, I was invited to participate in one of our Sunday school classes this morning, and and the, the text for the class was from Ephesians chapter 6, and I said, well, that's very interesting because I'm about to quote that again in my message. And let me tell you something, I don't consult the Sunday school curriculum when I come up with my sermon texts. And I'm not one who believes in any kind of coincidence. And Paul says in Ephesians 6, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, 
authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. Oftentimes, when the battle line is drawn and the resistance comes, it comes in the face of people or just odd circumstances. But there's something behind that. There's something that's driving that. And it's not coincidence when you take steps forward in your faith that something rises up to stop you, to suppress you, to make you doubt, to make you retreat just a little bit. And this is what we are up against every day. And I'm going to come back to this thought uh, near the end of this morning because it's, it is what we're facing right now in your lives, in the life of this church. And if we don't talk about it, if we don't expose it for what it is, then it doesn't do anybody any, any good. In verses 13 and 14 of, of Acts chapter 13, uh, Paul and Barnabas, they, they have this confrontation with uh, Sergius, Paulus, and Elimus, and uh, um, the governor responds very well. He becomes a believer. And from that uh, episode, uh, Paul and, and Barnabas, now they get on a boat again and they travel from the island of Cyprus back to the mainland to a port called Perga. Well, Perga is on sea level, and they end up in their journey going from Perga up to another Antioch, Pisidian Antioch. Now, from Perga to Antioch, not many people make that journey. You don't really have that much reason to go from Perga to Pisidian Antioch, because there's a big mountain range that's in the way. It's craggy, it's steep, it's kind of treacherous landscape. Uh, bandits like to hide out in there, so oftentimes you're not making that journey. You would access Antioch from other places, but we're told that they make the journey from Perga up the 3,000 or more feet of elevation um, to Pisidian Antioch. When I f I'm a geography guy. I told you this last week. I had that picture of a map, um, but I was thinking about the topography this week. And I had the topography, I had the topographic map in one hand, and then I, I also had a page of notes in the other hand that was talking about the, the resistance that these men were facing in advancing the gospel, and it, it struck me that the resistance that they faced mirrored the landscape of the, of the land. Have you ever gone on a hike? I know I'd lost some of you just right there. <laughs> um, out in the wilderness, there are some times when you are going on a hike and you might be, it might be before dark that you start, or, uh, before light that, that you start. It, it may be that you are in tree cover for quite a bit of your hike. And, and as you're going along, your eyes, your eyes kind of fool you into thinking that the ground is sort of level. I mean, you're going up and down a little bit, you know, some uh, elevation gain here and a little loss there. Uh, 
but you don't really have a big picture of what it is that you're accomplishing. But maybe a couple hours in, and now I just lost the rest of you, a couple hours in to your hike, <clears throat> you get to a point where maybe, the, maybe you get above the tree line, or, or maybe sunrise happens, and you pause on the trail. And you kind of you turn around and you look back where you came from. And now suddenly it makes sense on why your legs are so tired. Why you're maybe a little short of breath. Because you can turn around and you see all of the elevation maybe that you've gained. You, you see all those ups and downs. You see where you went by the river there and had to cross. And, and finally you, you see the, the places that may have been a little bit steeper. Where in the moment you knew you were going uphill. But now you have this kind of almost a bird's eye perspective. And that's kind of like life, isn't it? I know that I find myself on occasion just trying to get through a day. Maybe it's just get through a couple hours because it's hard. But then there's other times where, hey, life you know, feels good. I'm in a good mood today and accomplishing things, checking off the to-do list. This is awesome. But, you know, life is full of all of those things. And there are seasons that you go through once in a while that, that you, you, you get several months down the road and you think, wow, I'm, whew, I'm just tired. I'm worn out. Exhausted. Emotionally drained. And you pause. And you look back and you see all of the topography that you've covered over the last few months, and suddenly it makes sense. I just made the trip from Perga to Pisidian Antioch. No wonder I'm worn out. The resistance sometimes in the gospel going forward, just resistance in general in our life, oftentimes ends up you know, being that topography. But it's wonderful to know, isn't it, that God's with you through the whole thing? That in those moments of quiet prayer or loud prayer, sometimes you just shout at God, right? That's okay. He's big enough to handle it. That you're reminded that for every step, as slow as it might be, as painful as it might be, that God is with you. I was reading about just a guy. I don't know who, what, I don't know what guy it was. <clears throat> but he was out on a walk. He didn't call it a hike. It must have been flat. <laughs> and he came across um, a cocoon of an emperor moth. Now, I had to look up what an emperor moth was. It is a beautiful moth with like four spots on its wing, just ornate. I understand now why they call it emperor, because it's a majestic-looking moth, if that's possible. It's possible. And <clears throat> it was on a twig that was not attached to anything. So it wasn't like on a, it wasn't on a tree like that where you'd have to cut off the branch to take it home. It was just on a twig. 
And so he picked up the twig and he brought it home with him because he's like, I want to see what this is. So he had it sitting there and a period of time went by and he noticed that there was a, it was starting to open. It just had a little opening. Of course, he's fascinated with this. And he's watching it. And hours go by. And this moth is just struggling with its cocoon. Like it, it can't open it, and it's, it's, it's just having a difficult time. And, and the guy's all sorts of worried about this cocoon. I mean, he's emotionally invested now in the life of this creature. And so he went and he got some surgical snips. And he, he just snipped just a little bit of that cocoon. And it opened the rest of the way, and this moth emerged from the cocoon. It was kind of had a, its body was all swollen, and its legs weren't, you know, functional yet. And he's like, wow, this is, I just helped it. But as time went on, he was expecting to see this moth take flight. And it never did. It just kind of hobbled around on its legs. It didn't have the strength. Its, its wings didn't fully form. You see, when God designed moth, part of moth's development and maturity is the fight to get out of its cocoon. It's the struggle that it has to go through to emerge from the cocoon. That when it is struggling, it actually forces the fluids out into its wings so that once it is fully emerged from the cocoon, its wings would be developed and have the strength to fly. I don't know of a better metaphor than that for the struggles that we face. One, in life, but two, as believers. There's things, there's resistance, there's struggles, there are problems that we have to go through because it's part of the strengthening and the maturing process to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. And we live in a world that says if, if there is pain, then you can get rid of your pain. If there's struggle, there's a solution to your struggle. Well, the solution to our struggle is the person of Jesus who travels with us all the time. And yes, there will be relief. There is another side to whatever struggle it is that you're facing. But you don't need to try and avoid the struggle and the pain because that's the stuff that grows us. James, Jesus' brother, he writes that our faith produces perseverance. Our struggle helps us in that, right? We, we learn how to persevere. See, the struggle is part of, part of our journey. We see this on, time and again in the book of Acts. When there is resistance to the gospel, when the people who take it out, when these early believers face the persecution um, from the people around them, you understand why they're in pain. You understand why it hurts. But they, 
they go through it. And the gospel continues to thrive, continues to advance and make headway. So when Paul and Barnabas, they make this trek up the 3,000 feet or so, and they end up in this Pisidian Antioch town, they do what they normally do. They go to church. They go to the synagogue. So they start first with the Jew and then move out to share Jesus' message with, with the Gentile. So they show up, in, they show up at church, and, and the leaders ask them if, if Paul would have an exhortation. Give a word for the people. That's like asking me if I have a word. <laughs> I've always got a word. Paul's like, yeah, what took you so long? I've been sitting here the whole service, and yes, I have a word. And I remember last week, Paul's first message that's actually recorded when, when he was dealing with Elimus back in Paphos. Uh, it was, you child of the devil. And I imagine Barnabas saying, hey, um, maybe we want to lead with grace next time. So I can imagine they're in Antioch now, and the, the leaders of the church ask Paul, hey, do you have a word for us? I can imagine Barnabas just grabbing him by the collar and bringing him in. Okay, we had this chat, and we're going to lead with grace. Right, Paul? Paul has a word of exhortation. And it begins in... Um, verse 16 of chapter 13. I'm not going to read Paul's entire message. It's one of the longer sermons in the book of Acts, and it's a good one, and you can mark it down and go home and read it this afternoon. But the gist of Paul's message is he reminds them of the history of Israel and God's consistent initiative of grace along the way. God's the one who initiates grace at every single point along the way. And then he goes through some of the history of Israel, and then he connects the story of Jesus to Israel's history. And he tells them that the people of Jerusalem, well, they didn't recognize Jesus. And they condemned him to death, turned him over to the Romans, who crucified him on the cross and that he was dead and buried. But God raised him from the dead to new life. And in this person of Jesus, they can find forgiveness and freedom. What Paul was doing was he was telling them that what God had promised to their ancestors way back when, he fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So in Christ, what he's telling them, have you ever gotten up in the morning and, and said to yourself, you know, I, just, I need to do just a little bit better than yesterday. And that's a natural thing for us to do. When, when you are thinking about it in terms of um, stuff that you struggle with. Sometimes where you start is, I just need to do a little bit better than yesterday. And what Paul is telling these people is that the sin that you struggle with, Christ will take away from you. 
He will lift that burden. He will help you carry it. It doesn't mean that you, you know, are instantly over it. Some of those battles just keep going on. But you can find freedom in Christ from those things. So when you wake up in the morning, you don't have to always think, I just need to do a little bit better today. You can give it to Jesus and let him help you carry that. You have the power in Christ to live a totally transformed life. It's not always instant. For some people, it is instant. Others, it takes a while to discover that. Because sometimes when we give problems to Jesus, we do well for a while, but then we want to wrestle the problem back from Jesus. You know, I want to carry that for a while myself. And we feel like we're in a tailspin. Jesus patiently walks along with us, doesn't he? Hey, I can, I can help shoulder that. I can, I can carry that. You can live a totally transformed life in Jesus. But you have a choice. You have to make a choice. You can accept the forgiveness, you can accept the freedom in, um, in Christ, or you can go on trying to do just a little bit better, trying to satisfy the law, if you will. And these people that Paul was preaching to in this synagogue, they were trying to do just a little bit better in following the law each and every day. And it wasn't getting them very far. And so Paul comes in proclaiming this forgiveness and this freedom from being out from under the law. And the people just eat it up. It's what they needed to hear. They've been in a famine of just, I just need to do a little bit better. I can get a better mark on my scorecard today than I did yesterday. If you live like that, it'll wear you out. And Paul comes in saying, you can live free from the scorecard. But you've got you to make a choice. And so the immediate reaction, it's very favorable. People love this message. When they're leaving uh, the synagogue that day, they invite Paul to come back on the next Sabbath. Hey, will you come back and tell us a little bit more? This is fantastic. We, we need to hear about this. Paul says, sure, I'll come back. So the people leave, says they were dismissed. Well, the word used for dismissed there uh, has some responsibility attached to it. It's not just like dismissed as in, okay, we can go walk out the door and get in the buffet line now. It's what you have heard, you are dismissed to go put into practice. What you, what you heard here, what you experienced, you are now dismissed to go share that with somebody else. And so the people left the synagogue that day with this new message of freedom and forgiveness in Christ, and they go out dismissed, and they tell the whole town. Because what Luke says is that on the next Sabbath, almost the whole town showed up for church. I thought my message last week was okay, B, B plus, I don't know. It certainly wasn't good enough to get the whole town here today. <laughs> of course, it's a holiday weekend, you know, these sorts of things in the Northwest are difficult to deal with on occasion. But Paul must have preached a really good message for the people to be dismissed and get the whole town. Now, Pisidian Antioch, um, the scholars... Uh, 
estimate that at that time was probably, I get this, 35 to 40,000 people in that city. Almost the whole town showed up for church the next week. Can we do that next week? Okay. Well, let's just say Luke was speaking in a bit of hyperbole. And it seemed like the whole town showed up for church. Let's just say half the town showed up for church. So we're, you know, we're talking 17 to 20,000 people still. Now, synagogue's not big enough to accommodate a crowd like that. We don't know what happened, but there was an amphitheater we know of in Antioch that might seat five, six, seven. 8,000 people. You know, if we, we could get lost in all of these numbers and how many people, there's some people who like to take attendance and know exactly how many, and we have to report it to our denomination that, you know, how many people were at Sunday morning worship attendance. Some people really get into that. I don't think we need to do that here. What I think Luke is trying to tell us is that a lot of people showed up because the week before they heard something that fed their soul. That they've been, they've been in a famine. They've been struggling, trying to do just a little bit better the next day. And Paul lays out this feast. He lays out this smorgasbord in front of them of freedom and forgiveness, and they're just bowing it down. And they went out and they said, you know, the best buffet line in town is at the synagogue. You need to go get some of that. So they all showed up. And I think what Luke is saying is there was an overwhelming response in the community to hearing about the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus, and they came for the smorgasbord. But now, now we have a problem. Because those Jewish people that were part of that synagogue you know, they showed up for church at their regular time and all of the parking spots were full. They went in and somebody else's Bible was on their chair. They dismissed from their Sunday school class and all the cookies were gone. Luke says that they didn't like it that all those people showed up because they were jealous. Now, in our English, kind of modern-day understanding of jealous, if, if somebody in this room was holding a bag of jelly beans, I might say, man, I'm jealous. I wish I had some of those jelly beans. So we kind of understand that, you know, stuff that you have, I can be jealous of. But the word that's used here there's a different nuance to that word, and you can't really be jealous of something that you don't own or that you don't possess. That would be envy. If you had something that I don't have, then I could be envious of your bag of sweet tart jelly beans. But I wouldn't necessarily be jealous because they're not, they're not mine to be jealous of. Jealousy uh, suggests some kind of ownership. So you could say that Lisa my wife could be jealous of my time. You could say that God can be jealous for his children. That would be a more accurate way of talking about jealousy. And when we understand jealousy like that, then 
it really paints a picture of where the people's hearts were at at this synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. Because Luke says, when they saw all the people show up, that they were jealous. Which suggests to me that they felt like they owned the synagogue. That it was more their synagogue than it was God's place. And sometimes I wonder if we have moved that much further beyond where they are. Because there's sometimes where we might feel like this place, my church, there may be ownership issues on occasion. Because, if, let me ask you just a, a question that you can wrestle with. Let's just say that an, uh, an extra thousand people showed up next Sunday and started showing up on a regular basis. Would that be a good thing? It would be, wouldn't it? It would be awesome. But it would require some changes, wouldn't it? And sometimes when we get down, it's, it's really easy to say, yes, I want a thousand more people to come to this church to experience the love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and freedom that Christ offers to everybody freely. It's one thing to nod your head, yes, that's a good thing. It's another thing to begin to put it into practice because if you had an extra thousand people in here, things would be different, wouldn't they? We wouldn't all fit in this room. So then we'd have to go to multiple services. It's not a bad thing, but some people would say, you know what, I just prefer a whole worshiping body under one roof. You know, we'd have to have a lot more cookie bakers. There's all sorts of things that would likely change when you get the influence of that great an influx of people, and that's when the jealousy issues start coming up because, man, I really liked it when we did this. It's just good to put out there and think of. These things are in Scripture because there's stuff that we still deal with and wrestle with even today. So now, because the Jewish people in the synagogue are um, acting out of jealousy, now they're trying to contradict what Paul and Barnabas were teaching the people. No, that's not true. We're going to speak against that, and you all can go home now, because it's just not true. What you came to hear, that's false. They started speaking against, so this resistance now, this resistance, even from people within the synagogue, the devil is able to use anybody to start to create distractions and resistance and doubt. They started acting out of jealousy, contradicting Paul and Barnabas. But in verse 49, we read that despite, despite this resistance, that the gospel keeps moving forward. It spreads throughout the whole region, in fact. See, what began in a room in Syrian, Syrian Antioch with five guys huddled around praying now is in Pisidian Antioch hundreds of miles away and there is resistance there and yet the gospel is going out into all the regions. I want that kind of faith. 
But even as the word spread, Paul and Barnabas still faced the enemy. In verse 50, it says, But the Jewish leaders... The Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. We're going to call all the important people to dismiss you, to speak against you. Not only did they, not, not only did they incite those people, they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. We're going to ramp up the heat, turn up the fight. We're dropping the gloves. Persecution's going to happen because we need to stop this at all cost because it's a threat to us. And then it says, and they expelled them from their region. See, you can be in tune, in step with the Holy Spirit, advancing the gospel in your own life, in your own faith journey, in the, in the journey of a church, a corporate body of believers together, advancing the gospel, and you're still going to be met with resistance. And it goes back to the devil being at work in the world. When we take steps forward, the devil's going to bring out his A-game. There's nothing that the devil loves more than an apathetic, passive Christian. Eh, I'm doing okay. I open up my Bible, definitely while I'm at church, and, and we pray. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know if I, I don't know if I want to run the risk of sharing with my neighbor this message of forgiveness and freedom, you know, because they might get offended. Satan loves that. He loves it when you act like that. See, the problem is, most of us who have been believers for any period of time would acknowledge that those who are passive in their faith uh, or apathetic, uh, that, that the, the devil would like that. But the problem is that nobody thinks they are passive. It's always a, oh yeah, they're, they're so passive. But when we look in the mirror ourselves, we're like, yeah, we're doing it well. I read my Bible, I pray, I do all, I do all these sorts of things, which is good. You, you need to do those things. But there's also the introspective look. Are, am, I, am I apathetic in my faith? What, what can I do to keep advancing the gospel? What steps can I take forward in our Sunday school class this morning, we were reminded that, that all of the language in the Bible isn't defensive language. It's, it's to go on the offense, to take the gospel forward. You aren't saved just to save yourself. You are saved by the redeeming power of Jesus so that you will share it. Which means that you have to open your mouth and speak, that you have to put the things in the Bible into practice in your own life so that people see a living example that, yes, you can live in freedom. So you're, you play offense. Paul and Barnabas took the gospel out. The instructions for Jesus was to go make disciples of all nations, right? 
So here we are. I really love how this story ends. We get to the end, verse 51 and 52. It says that Paul and Barnabas, they shook the dust off. I don't, I don't even want to take any of the dirt from your town. If you people don't want this, that's fine. We're shaking the dust off and leaving it behind. And if you want to kick us out of town, that's fine. We're going to go share it with some people who want the message, who are hungry for the message. By the way, the Gentiles in that community ate up the message, and it grew. The people of the synagogue, not so much. You can go on to the next town. You're just causing too much problem for us. But then, it goes further, and then it says, they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. See, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, when you're keeping in tune with Him and working and living in the direction that God would desire, one of the natural consequences of that is to be filled with joy. It doesn't matter what circumstances you're facing. That you have the gift of salvation and the revelation of Jesus Christ should be enough to fill you with joy. And this is the regular, that's the regular counsel of Scripture, cover to cover. Even in adversity, you can face it being filled with joy. Paul says it multiple times, rejoice always. James, brother of Jesus, in that same passage that I quoted earlier, he says to consider it pure joy when you face trials of any kind. And I think this theme shows up a lot because it goes against everything that we're taught. We're taught, we live in a culture that says your joy, which most people misconstrue as happiness, your happiness and joy are found in your circumstances. That's what we're taught, but that's totally anti-gospel. You can have joy in any and every circumstance, is the counsel of Scripture. I found myself... Um, I found myself laughing at the devil recently. Just, ha! Or a little chuckle. Yeah, nice try. Sometimes that's all you can do when you're oppressed or beat down or resisted. Sometimes the only thing you can do is laugh. So, most of you know, I took on the challenge of reading the Bible out loud during Lent, cover to cover, Genesis through Revelation. It took a lot of time. It took uh, almost 73 hours of actual read time. Some of you were here for quite a bit of it or tuned in online. I want to tell you about what happened on the night that I read Revelation. Because you know when you put the Word of God out there, uh, you're going to meet with resistance, right? So I'm about Revelation, oh, 17 or 18. And, and I have my phone right here, and, I, and I'm, I'm reading, and a text message comes through. It's about, I don't know, a little bit after 8. And so I get distracted too. 
So I'm trying to read and one eye on each. Because it's from Lisa. I'm, like, I'm going to pay attention to my wife. She wouldn't normally text me at this moment. She says, the basement is flooded. And I, I didn't have any frame of reference like, what? So I finish reading. Um, and then I look at the text, and she didn't get home till late from work that night. And she smelled an odor in the house. The sewer backed up. Flooded big chunk of our basement. She sent me a picture. <laughs> Not pretty. Let me back the, that up for you. No pun intended. <laughs> Good one. Usually on, that was a Wednesday night. Usually on Wednesday night, my routine is when the office closes, I go home. Lisa works later on Wednesdays. And Brian and I have dinner, and then we come back for the evening's activities at church. Lisa works, worked extra late on that night. Brian had a track meet, wasn't home. So I decided to stay here in the gap time between when the office closed and when the reading started at 7. Normally I would go home. So as I'm vacuuming up the mess, and as I have been putting a new floor in plank by plank, I've been praying and thanking God that I did not go home between when the office closed and when the reading started. Because if I would have gone home, I would not have come back for the reading. You understand why. So I have been saying, ha, Satan, you're going to have to do better than that. That was a nice attempt, and yes, We've certainly spent a whole lot of time and resource on fixing something that we just didn't have on our list to do right now. I wish I could say it's isolated to one instance in my own life, but there's multiple things like that that I can attribute directly to the work of the devil trying to beat back, trying to resist the advance. And I've not noticed it just in my own life, but There's lots of you who there's things that are going on in your life right now that are almost totally unexplainable. Things rise up. Illnesses happen. Just frequent. There's some, you know, the flu, and that's just kind of regular stuff. But there's stuff that's going on in this congregation that's somewhat unexplainable other than it's the work of the devil. My friend's Richard and Joanna, they, I don't know how long ago, several weeks ago, made a recommitment to turn up their witness level on a scale of 1 to 10 from, to an 11. And I can tell you that they are working to do that. The devil doesn't like that because they're taking ground. And so they've had a comedy of things that have 
popped up in their lives. Richard posted a picture of their bathtub the other day that filled up with this black, ugly water. Only house in the whole neighborhood that that happened to, by the way. Some work was being done in the area, and the only house that was affected, I'm I'm sure it's a coincidence, right? (laughs) Was theirs. When they went to use a vacant house for shower purposes, the black water started coming out of that one. You think that's coincidence? There's multiple things. And yet, I want to read you what uh, Richard records it like this. He says, there's a serious battle going on, but we are not discouraged. This has only increased our faith in God all the more. Praise God, the Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's testimony right there. There is an adversary that's at work in the world, and it's not flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers and the principalities and the authorities. And you have to acknowledge that. It's not just some dumb coincidence and bad luck that happens. When you go advance the gospel, when you turn up your witness off the scale to an 11, the devil's not going to like that. Paul and Barnabas faced this over and over and over again. And I have to keep reminding myself that the devil must feel threatened by what's going on in the life of this church. That you're doing good. Be encouraged. I know that sounds kind of silly because it goes against everything that the world would tell you is right and good. But you can take comfort. You can be encouraged in the problems that you face. You can be filled with joy because if the best thing that Satan has to throw at you is a bathtub of black water, ha! That's not going to win. It might get me down and discouraged and it might be overwhelming and cause me to lose sleep and have to spend money to have it fixed, but you know what? I'm still alive and breathing and I can breathe out the very words of Jesus. I can keep sharing the gospel that there is forgiveness and freedom and there's the gift of salvation in Christ. Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, he totally reframed his perspective on what is good and right. That for him to keep on living, even under severe resistance and persecution, you know what? I can laugh at the devil. I can face my circumstances, and I can live in Christ. I can be his beacon of light wherever I go. But you know what? The worst they can do, the worst they can do is take my life. But we, we serve a God of resurrection, and so even if they take your life, that means you meet Jesus face to face. So when you take away the sting of death, which Jesus did, to live is Christ, and the worst you can do is kill me. Okay. Okay. 
Bring it on, devil. Bring it on. People of God said, amen. amen. I, I know we're a little after 12, but that's okay. <laughs>